Well, good morning. Thank you, Mariah, for that. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the small group's pastor, and I am happy to be preaching for you this morning. Uh, If you're not there already, turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 1. We're going to be in those verses that Mariah just read for us. Um, And last week, Daniel Wagner began our new series in James called A Faith That Works. Uh, He talked about persevering through trials and passing the test of trials. And if you missed that, I encourage you uh, to go back and listen to it. He did a great job with it. And um, that is also the first time that I've ever come away from church with three new lures in my tackle box. Um, He let me have those. So I got a great crankbait, spinnerbait, and a swimbait. So I'm excited to use those. I don't think fishing's boring like Daniel does. So if you're old enough, uh, you've heard of Chuck Swindoll. Um, I may be dating myself here. But Chuck Swindoll is a pastor who lives in Texas. He founded a ministry called Insight for Living. He's 87 years old. He still preaches every Sunday at a massive church in the Dallas area. Um, Just a really significant voice in in years past um, and even to this day. But in one of his books from many years ago, he tells a hypothetical story. Um, And it goes like this. Let's pretend that you work for me. In fact, you're my executive assistant in a company that's growing rapidly. I'm I'm the owner and I'm interested in expanding overseas. To pull this off, I make plans to travel abroad and stay there until the new branch office gets established. I make all the arrangements to take my family to Europe for six to eight months, and I leave you in charge of the busy stateside organization. I leave you instructions, and I tell you that I'll write regularly with detailed expectations. I leave, and you stay. Months pass. A flow of letters are are, are mailed. This is back in the day, so it's snail mail. Uh, They're mailed from Europe to you at the national headquarters and received. I spell out all my expectations, and finally I return, and soon after my arrival, I go go down to the office, and I'm stunned. Grass and weeds have grown up high, and there's windows broken on the exterior of the building. The receptionist is sitting at her desk, doing her nails, chewing gum, and listening to the radio. I look around, I see the wastebaskets are overflowing, the carpet hasn't been vacuumed in weeks, and nobody seems to care that the owner has returned. I ask someone where you are, and someone in the crowded lounge area points down the hall and says, I think he's down that way. Disturbed, I move in that direction, and I bump into you as you're finishing a game of chess with the sales manager. I ask you to step into my office, which has been temporarily turned into a room for employees to watch afternoon TV. What in the world is going on, man, I ask. What do you mean, you reply. Look at this place, I say. Didn't you get any of my letters of instruction? Letters, you say? Oh, yeah, sure, we got every one of them. As a matter of fact, we even have letter study every Friday. We've even divided all the personnel into small groups to discuss and study many of the things you wrote. Some of those things were really interesting. You'll probably like to know that a few of us have actually committed some of your sentences and paragraphs to memory. A couple folks have even memorized an entire letter or two. This is, there's really some great stuff in the letters you sent. So I look at you and I say, okay, you got my letters. You studied them, you meditated on them, you discussed them, and you even memorized them. But what did you do about them? You blink. Do? We didn't actually do anything. Now, that's a made-up story from a book that many of us, including myself, before this week have never heard of, but you can see how absurd the whole thing is. We're going to read James one twenty-two through 25 again. Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. 
But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is God's word. The book of James is a book of action. It's a book about how to live out the Christian faith in practical ways. It shows us that the faith that we proclaim in Christ is backed up in action and in work done in his name. Short book, there's only 108 verses in the entire book of James, but there's 54 imperatives in those 108 verses. An imperative is just a direct call to action. It's a direct call to do something. James is direct. He is to the point. He wants his readers to know that our faith demands action. So we must be doers of the word and not hearers only. So in the four verses that we're looking at today, I want to call our attention to three things as we consider a faith that works. A casual glance, a continual response, and a clear blessing. Wagner and I, Daniel Wagner and I were, before he left for the DR, were making fun of alliteration. And I'm Baptist, and I'm sorry, but that's how it goes. Three points, and they, they are alliterative. Um, so a casual glance, uh, verses 22 through 24. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and goes away, and at once forgets what he looks like. What does it mean to be a doer of the word? What is it that we actually do? So let's explore this. James sets doers and hearers against each, each other. He also gives an example of a man who looks in the mirror. Um, uh, uh, people who look in a the mirror, they see themselves in a the mirror to these guys. One does something, one forgets. It's a simple analogy of a mirror that we can all relate to because we all know what a mirror is. And it's important to remember that James's original audience are Jewish believers, right? So Daniel, remember he said this last week from James chapter 1. He's writing, James is writing to dispersed Jewish Christians who were all over the Roman Empire. And like any good Jew of the time, when they read a phrase like, do the word, very likely they could have thought of a passage from the Old Testament, a scene from the Old Testament. In Exodus 24, after Moses brought the law down from God, after he came down Sinai and read the law to the people, he read it to them, and in Exodus 24, 3, the people, when they heard what God had commanded, they responded, they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Then Moses read the covenant that God made with his people. And after hearing the covenant, the people responded, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and be obedient. And this is a common theme in the Bible. The word of God is heard, his people obey. In Luke eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So there's this, and there's multiple examples of this. If I were to kind of list out all of the references of the Old Testament, uh, talking about obedience and even into the New Testament, talking about obedience to God's word. If you, if you hear my commands, if you love me, you'll do what I command. If we went through all of those, we'd be here a really long time and I want to get you out before lunch. But to do the word, there's this connection between doing and obeying. And so to do the word, then, we must obey. The obedient person is one who, from the heart, obeys God's word. That is, the doer of the word is one who has internalized the word of God. They've hidden it deep in their heart. They've treasured it. They have, in a sense, looked deep into the word of God and found life. And that life, then, is lived back out to God in obedience to what he has commanded. Now, those who only hear the word are much different. There's no internalization. 
There's no lasting obedience. There's no roots that grow deep into a person's heart. We're called to listen to the word, absolutely. We're called to hear the word, absolutely. Romans 10.14 makes it clear when Paul writes that the word is essential to salvation. Paul says, how will then they then call on whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And then two verses later, Paul writes, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So hearing is essential to the word. It's, it's essential to our Christian life. We must hear the word. We must hear it preached. We must hear it sung. We must hear it read. We must look at it and memorize it and speak it and remind each other with it and encourage each other with it and be immersed in it. But we, we can't only do those things. We must obey the word and do the word and do the word by obeying the word. You see, we can be charmed by the Bible, but not changed by the Bible. A pastor I'm really fond of, preaching on the same passage, said, the more we listen to the word without being changed, the less likely we are to be changed by the word. And that's true. We can all become calloused and familiar with the Bible only by memorizing it and knowing a lot of facts about it. There's a lot of people who know a lot of facts about the Bible, but they have no they have no real living, they, they have nothing other than just, hey, it's a, it's, a, it's a book of facts that I memorized a lot of cool stuff about, but it hasn't done anything in their heart. Uh, we, we see this in the Bible itself. In Mark 6, Herod, King Herod, had John the Baptist in prison, and he would often call John up to preach for him, kind of in an entertainment. He liked to dialogue with him. He liked to listen to him preach but ultimately it had no effect on his life. Likewise, in Acts 24, when Paul was in prison, he was waiting to appeal to the Roman governor, uh, to the Roman emperor, excuse me, to Caesar. Um, and we read that the Roman governor Felix and his wife Drusilla would often call Paul up out of, the, out of the prison to hear him speak. They liked to hear him reason. They liked to hear him teach. But ultimately they were unchanged. They left him there and they did nothing with the word that they heard. They were intrigued by his teaching, but they ultimately sent him away. And for Herod and Felix and Drusilla and many in the church today, the word is little more than theory. It is little more than thought-provoking material that offers some good wisdom and might be consulted every now and then, kind of like a magic eight ball, rather than the divine revelation of God himself. And looking at the word this way is like casually glancing in a mirror. James says. We can look, we see, and we walk away forgetting what we saw. We all get this. We've probably done this a couple times this morning. We've, we've walked by a mirror, we've casually glanced, and we walked away. But every one of us knows the difference between passing by a mirror and catching a glimpse of ourselves and stopping and looking. We may pause for a moment and take a closer look, but unless we stop and look, we're not, we're not stopping to inspect ourselves. We're not analyzing anything. We're not looking to see if there's anything on our face or in our teeth or on our clothes. It's just a passing glance. But look what, jump down to verse 25, look what James says, a hearer is one who looks intently and walks away and forgets. Now that, that's interesting because the word for intently there is the same word that's used when Peter and Mary Magdalene look into the tomb after Jesus' resurrection. They're looking intently. They're looking for something. There's a purpose to that look. This is more than a passing glance. It's a, it's a deep, reflective look that seeks something. Is that how you read the Bible? 
Is that how you come to the Bible? Do you look at it intently and, and seek something when you go there? It's a look that means to uncover the meaning and actually see what's there. It's a purposeful, longing, and meaningful look. So the one who looks in the word intently in this way and then goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like isn't someone with a cognitive ability to remember this is purposeful. This is someone who forgets on purpose. We can't really take a look at something intently with the expectation of seeing something and then when we see it, forget it on purpose unless what we saw means absolutely nothing to us. And the hopelessness and helplessness of our situation, we can then look up and see the majesty of a saving God who stands ready to save us. So when we see our sin, we see the majesty of Christ, we can either obey him or we can walk away purposely forgetting what we saw. James's thought progression in these, pa- in these verses goes like this. Hearing the word must be followed by obedience. Truly accepting God's word means doing it. So the word is a mirror that shows us the reality of who we are and the reality of who God is. I've I've often quoted this book. I think I may have done it last time I preached, but I'm I'm really fond of John Bunyan's famous book, Pilgrim's Progress. I think it's um, not only is it one of the greatest works in the English language, but it's also such an amazing parallel to the Christian life. And if you haven't read it, read it. It's really important. But um, it's helpful again here. Um, there's, these, there's these two characters in that book and uh, it, they, 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 they kind of illustrate this idea of a mirror really well and the characters Mercy and Christiana are making their way through the delectable mountains on the way to Celestial City and they encounter some shepherds there and the shepherds show them this mirror and here's how the, here's how the mirror is described now the glass was one of a thousand it would present a man one way with his features exactly Turn it but another way, and it would show one the very face and similitude of the Prince of Pilgrims himself. Yeah, we don't talk like that anymore. It's, just, it's, it's beautiful, isn't it? Maybe I'm just a nerd. I don't know. Yea, I have talked with those who can tell, and have said that they have seen the very crown of thorns upon his head by looking into this glass. They have therein also seen the holes in his hands, in his feet, and in his side. The man who continues looking into the mirror of God's word sees in it things that are far more wonderful than his own face. He sees not only his filthy garments, not only the spots and stains on his own life, he sees in it Christ, the Christ of the thorn-crowned brow, the Christ of the cross, his Savior, whose blood cleanses him from it. Look longingly into it and see Jesus and do the word by obeying what he says. Next, we see a continual response, and this is verse 25. We'll spend the rest of our time in in verse 25. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So the one who's foolish casually glances into the word 
looks intently and then forgets. He hears, but he doesn't obey. And those who don't obey don't do the word. Okay, so we, we have that set. Now, in verse 25, we see how the doer looks into the word. We've already talked about it being an intent, an intent purposeful, meaningful look, but we see, we see what this looks like. And remember, we need, to, we need to understand again that James is writing to Jews primarily, so it's no, it's, no, it's no surprise that he appeals to the law in this intent look. So his audience is made up of those who love the law properly because their love of the law has shown them Christ. They've understood that they can't fulfill the law on their own, and they must need a Savior, and they have, that has led them to the, to the Messiah. They heard the word, they believed, they did the word by obeying the word. Do you, you see the pattern emerging there? So normally we think of the law, let's talk about the law just a little bit. We normally think about the law as being restrictive, a list of things that we can't do or shouldn't do or aren't allowed to do. We think of the law as oppressive and burdensome. And some laws are like that. Have you ever tried to get a permit to put a deck in, your, in the back of your house? It's insane. Like it's your own property and you've got to get like eight different permits. That's an oppressive law. That's not political, that's just a statement of fact. <laughs> but the law that James is talking about is the law that's written on our hearts. In Jeremiah 31, 33, God tells his people of the new covenant that he's making with them. He says, Jeremiah says, quoting God, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's this law that brings us liberty. Now, James makes an appeal here to the law that was given to frame God's people rather than to restrict them. That's the law, right? The law frames us as God's people, but it doesn't restrict us from doing things that we ought not to do. This is the law of liberty. My pages are stuck together. We need to unpack this a little bit. If the law is preached externally, that is, if the law is preached as rules and regulations that we have to follow in order to be accepted by God, in, in order to be um, counted righteous, if, if, if we have to do all of these things so that God will love us, that, is a, that law is a lifeless and burdensome thing. If you're always looking at the checklist and saying, I hope I've done enough to please God so that I can be in, in good favor with him, you are missing out. It is crushing you. It will crush us beneath its weight. It will drain us. The law like that can show us our need. It can show us our failure and constantly remind us that we can't measure up. The external law then condemns our sin and causes us to stand guilty before the justice and righteousness of a holy God. This is what the external law does, and it's powerless to save. But the law written on our hearts is that which the Spirit of God writes in us when we, when we become a child of God. This law is the law that brings us the grace of adoption as sons and daughters of God. It transforms us. It replaces our natural heart of stone with the heart of flesh. It makes us new. It's the grace of the law, and it makes us perfect. So as a trusted commentator has said about this, about verse 25 here, he says this. He says, it is, is, it is it, as is if James had said, the teaching of the law, let it no longer lead you to bondage, but on the contrary, bring you to liberty. Let it no longer only be a schoolmaster, but bring you to perfection. It ought not to be received by you with sincere affection, 
I'm sorry, it ought to be received by you with sincere affection so that you may lead a godly and holy life. And I think that's right. I think that's a good summation of verse 25. So while the external law brings us condemnation, like Paul says in Romans, what the law was powerless to do, God did through sending Christ, the law written on our hearts brings freedom. Think about this phrase in verse 25, that the law of liberty. Now to us, we oftentimes think of liberty as kind of the, the, the ability to be free and put a deck in our backyard with no permits, right? So we can, also, we can awful, oftentimes think about this law of liberty as being free to do whatever we want, free of consequence. We're free to give in to our passions. We're free to pursue our own interests. We're free to chase after our appetites and run wild and chase after anything, whatever it may be, that gives us pleasure or helps us achieve what we want. We can so easily think that if I could just do what I want, I would be free. But a pursuit of our base pleasure doesn't lead to liberty. It leads to slavery. Slavery to our desires. And this is how addictions have so much power. If you've ever struggled with that, you know. You know what this is like. We become addicted, slaves to our impulses, those things that give us that high, that momentary happiness, that release, and we become so consumed with chasing that feeling that we will do anything, literally anything, to get it. And without knowing it, we become its slave. We think that it'll bring us joy and pleasure and satisfaction, but in the end, we wind up being mastered by it and having no satisfaction, and it takes everything and leaves nothing but pain. We'll keep medicating ourselves uh, with empty, hollow, meaningless pursuit of our desires until we are so far away from what liberty and freedom really are, we don't even recognize that when we see it. Being a slave to desire is not freedom. It's bondage. And as Paul says in Romans 6, 16 through 18, he says this. He says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. But the perfect law, the law of liberty, is not like bondage an oppressive burden that we're shackled with. Rather, when we receive the grace of God by hearing the word and obeying it, we experience the full work of the perfect law, the law of liberty, which instead of chasing our own based desires, frees us now to do what we ought to do. We don't talk a lot about, about oughts anymore, but we should. Martin Luther, who's probably my favorite character of all church history and not really a big fan of the book of James, um, he wrote about then the bondage of the will. In a nutshell, Luther said in, in, in that tract, uh, the bondage of the will, he said that our, our will is naturally bound to sin. And then if left alone to pursue our own desires and interests, we will do nothing but descend further into sin, further and further and further away from God. And he's right. It's Ephesians 2, it's Romans 1, several other passages all throughout. But what we ought to do is turn from our sin. 
We ought to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. We must hear this word. We must listen to it and we must obey it. Then we will be free to do what we ought. And what we ought to do is to love, honor, and obey our king in an unbreakable, joyful, life-giving relationship with him forever. That is the law of liberty. So our continued response, our continual response then to the word then is persevering in intent study in God's word and putting it into practice. Back up in verse 22, the meaning of the verb, so this, this phrase, do the word, be, be doers of the word, that's a, not to get all Greeky on you, but it's, it's it, the, the way the, the verb is, it's a present active verb, which means it's, it's ongoing, it's an ongoing action. So verse 22 could be translated, be continually doers of the word, or keep on striving to be doers of the word, and building off of that idea in verse 25, after his appeal to the law, we have James calling us to persevere. Keep on, keep on looking, keep on doing. Perseverance is a big theme in James. But perseverance in verse 25 has to do with persevering and continually looking into the perfect law, the law of liberty. This then is our continued response to the word and how we do what verse 22 says, to keep on doing the word. When we persevere in intense study of God's word, and we persevere, in, we, we persevere in God's word by obeying it, we will see more deeply in the mirror of his word the state of our own soul. Spiritual features and imperfections are brought out. We become truly humble in spirit because we know what we are. And blessed are those who are humble in spirit. We also grow deeper in our knowledge of who we are and we can say with Paul in Romans 7.24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But we can also say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.10, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. By persevering in the word and the law of liberty, we not only see ourselves and what God has done and is continuing to do in us, but we also continually see God's word reflected. Uh, we, we see the image of him, we see the image of our holy, transcendent, awesome God who has saved us by his grace, and we see reflected in the word, when we see this reflected in the word, it enables us to understand forgiveness more and more. And this is how we do the word. We live continually and persevere in profound obedience to God, which is what we ought to do. The law of liberty gives us that freedom. We keep looking and doing and doing and looking as we begin to understand that knowledge followed by obedience brings more knowledge. This is our continual response. And then briefly, a clear blessing. And we'll stay in verse 25 and we'll read it again. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So we do the word by obeying the word. We look intently into the perfect law and it brings us liberty and we persevere in doing this and by continually obeying and submitting ourselves to what the Bible says. And James is clear that we will be blessed in doing this. Our doing, our acting out on what the Bible says, this will bring blessing. Now, we do not bring about our own faith. We do not act and then God rewards that. We do not 
do all these things on this checklist so that God will reward us and make us okay. We are not earning our salvation. We're not working towards that. Our actions, our working, they do not make us right with God. They do not put us in his favor or they do not put him in our debt. We're not stacking up bonus points for later in case we mess up and we need them. Rather, we hear the word. We believe. When we believe, we repent of our sin, turning from our sin and turning to God. And he makes us new. He replaces our heart of, flesh, our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. He writes his covenant on our heart. And as we seek to grow and deepen our faith, we obey what he has said. This is what brings us the blessing. Because the Lord himself will reward our steadfast pursuit of him with himself. My favorite living preacher, and I'm, I'm blessed to get to go to a conference. I can't wait till May. The first week of May, I'm going to be at a conference at, at this guy's church. Alistair Beggs, my favorite living preacher. Y'all probably have heard me say that. He says this. He says, there is a direct correlation between our individual response to the Bible and our effectiveness and enjoyment of the Christian life. I think that's right. As we do God's word and as we look intently into it, as we internalize it, as we seek to persevere in doing it, the Lord will bless that work. Hearing the word demands, hearing the word this way demands a response if we're to be doers and have a faith that works. If you look at the word and you see your sin and you see Christ's majesty and you realize that you don't know him, ask him to save you. Hold up the empty hands of faith, repent and turn from your sin and be reconciled to God and know the one who gives life to your soul by making you right with him through his own blood. If you're a believer and know King Jesus, don't become calloused or familiar with his word. Don't take it for granted. Keep on striving. Keep on digging. Keep obeying. Being saved by grace alone doesn't diminish the requirement to obey God's commands and do what he says. Forgiveness for past breaking of the law does not remove the present obligation to obey it. Jesus himself says in John 13, 17, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So have a faith that works. Be a doer of the word. Obey what it says and be blessed. Or you could walk away and purposely forget the things that you've seen and the things that you've heard you can ignore your sin, you could disregard God's greatness, and you'll perish. Remember the story I quoted at the beginning when we began from the book that no one, none of us has ever heard of? We might amend it a bit, as one commentator did. Letters, Lord? Yeah, we got them, every one of them. As a matter of fact, Lord, we have letter study every Friday. We've even divided all the congregation into small groups and discussed many of the things that you wrote. Nothing wrong with small groups, by the way. Get in one if you're not. Call me. They're awesome. That's not just job security, but that's also really important, getting a small group. Some of the things you wrote, Lord, were really interesting. You'll be pleased to know that a few of us have even actually committed some of them to memory. A couple of us have even memorized an entire letter or two. Great stuff in those letters. And he might say, okay, you got my letters. You studied them. You meditated on them. You discussed them. And you've even memorized them. But what did you do about it? Well, that's my sermon. Let me invite the band up and I will pray and we will sing. Father, make us doers of your word. Give us, um, give us the discipline to obey you.
Lord, help us to look deeply into your word, not only to see who we are, Lord, but also to see your majesty. Lord, show us who we are apart from you. Show us our need for a Savior. Show us the majesty of Jesus and his power to save and his willingness to save. Let us look intently and expectantly and um, longingly into your word and then to do what you say and obey you in faith. Give us a faith that works. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.